Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 321 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We are here to chat a little bit about some news regarding the Duke coaching staff. Now, Coach K is still going to be retiring. John Shire is still going to be the head coach. <laughs> but there are other things happening, other changes happening, and we got other news going on. Dukies in the NBA, stuff going on with college basketball and how it's played, some Olympic news. We got a little potpourri of everything for you today. I am Jason Evans, hosting this week. I am joined by my good buddy, Donald Wine. Donald, how are you feeling today? Uh, well, first of all, happy Father's Day to you, Jason, uh, you. to everyone out there who is a dad. Uh, I know Sam is not with us today, so we'll wish happy Father's Day to his dad. And of course, last but not least, to my father, happy Father's Day. Uh, hope he is having a good one. I was able to talk to him. So uh, I'm glad you're able to take some time out on your special day to talk to me, the the not dad of this chat of this uh, podcast this week. Yeah, like you said, Sam's not not uh, not able to join us today. Um, I, I have had an interesting Father's Day. It was supposed to be my favorite, my absolute favorite thing to do on Father's Day, which is play softball with my two sons. Um, we're in a softball league here in Atlanta. I, I'm the former commissioner of the league. And uh, and I love playing with my two boys. I'm terrible. They are both really, really good because they're young and have legs and, <laughs> and they run all over the place. And I am sad to report it was pouring, just a torrential downpour for the past 24 hours and so the games were called off donald do you know what i got to do instead it what's sucks. that it sucks man i went to ikea with my wife my, my son's gonna be in law school at tulane we had to buy some furniture for him so i spent my father's day walking through ikea that's not my idea of fun <laughs> did, did you get any swedish meatballs no, we did not get any of the food. No, that, but it, it's kind of weird that you're sitting here looking at furniture and every so often there'll be a, a sign like right in your face. It's like, have some, have some meat. And they have like veggie meatballs and other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was. Or strange. you get the whiff from the cafeteria and you're like halfway yeah. through the, the museum that is the store and you kind of get a whiff of like, what is that? Like, is that the, is that the bench? Like, no, it's, it's the cafeteria. Yeah. Very strange stuff. But um, let, let's, let's put Ikea aside. And, and get on to talking a little bit about some Duke basketball news. In just the past few days, we heard that Chris Carrawell has been elevated from assistant coach to associate head coach. This is not a, uh, a title that we are unfamiliar with at Duke. Um, typically, sort of the top assistant, even the top two assistants in the program, get this title after you've been around for three, four, five years or more. Um, you move up. I, I imagine there's something in the Duke hierarchy that gives you a little extra pay or something like that having to do with it, but it's certainly a designation that matters. Tell me what you saw in this, why you think it matters. Um, uh, obviously, John Shire is also an associate head coach, but he's associate head coach and head coach in waiting. And so, so now Chris Carrawell, it would appear to me, Donald, it, he is, it's been shown that Chris Carrawell is John Shire's pick to be his sort of right-hand man when John Shire takes over. Yeah, and it's not surprising. It, it tells a lot about how they can shape this, you know, this coaching staff. Uh, he's been around, as you said. This helps with continuity, which is a big deal when you're talking about transferring between uh, from one coach to another. No matter who those coaches are, you want to have some sort of continuity remain in the program. You'll see sometimes, even if it's an outside pick for a head coach, they try to retain an assistant coach that has been around, that knows the players, that knows the program, and kind of has that, you know that foundation so that they can keep that going. So this is not surprising. I mean, you add Nolan Smith to the, to the roster, uh, assumably this is going to be, you know, you have your two guys right here. It remains to be seen who there's a couple of things. One, 
who's going to take the reins on being the lead recruiter? Is that going to be Chris Carowell? Is that is it going to be where John Shire is very active in recruiting? Or is he going to be the closer like we've known Coach K to be? Uh, or does that go to Nolan Smith? And then I'll also be curious, Chris Carowell, John Shire, and Nolan Smith. None of them have head coaching experience. Obviously, when John Shire takes over, it will be interesting to see if he brings in a coach that does have some head coaching experience, even if they are outside of the brotherhood. So uh, having those questions aside, that means that this actually makes it, you know, a very, very much an easy decision and the right one, because you, again, keep that continuity. You have someone on staff that knows the program and knows the players and with him with Nolan Smith makes for a great team. You know, you talked about, I want to first address, you know, who's going to be the head recruiter Um, because I, I do feel like, uh, even though Carowell has been active in recruiting, uh, I, I feel like we're probably going to see Nolan Smith taking the taking the primary recruiter kind of role that that John Shire had. Um, and, and I don't think that's a I don't think that's a, a pecking order kind of thing. Um, I, you know, I think different guys excel in different aspects of all of this. Uh, and that's not to say that Chris Carowell isn't a, a very good recruiter, um, but but it just feels like you know, based on what you've heard about people's personalities and those other kind of things that, that Nolan Smith really connects with, with kids out there on, on the recruiting trail. And, uh, and then I think he's probably going to be the lead recruiter. And look, when we hearken back to what the staff was in the past, when John Shire and Nate James were, were both the two assistant coaches, um, the two primary assistant coaches, uh, even before John Shire was elevated to associate head coach, uh, and, and Nate already was that associate head coach. Um, Shire was taking more of a role in recruiting. So I don't think that associate job necessarily says you're the lead recruiter. Uh, the, the other thing is, and the really important thing is, you know, this notion of who else Duke brings into the coaching staff. Um, I know there are a lot of Duke fans who've speculated about, you know, names like Quinn Cook. People have talked about, you know, hey, maybe Wo- if Wojo is still out of a job. Um, look, I, I, I openly wondered a little bit Johnny Dawkins is at a point. Johnny's family lived in Durham for a long time. They they love Durham. Um, things have not gone super great in Florida for Johnny, and it's it's possible that he may, you know, he may feel sort of close to retiring. And maybe if he wants to retire in Durham, I wouldn't be, you know, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I wouldn't be shocked if Johnny Dawkins um, came to be closer to the Duke program and, and take an assistant coaching job as a way of sort of winding down his career. Johnny's getting close to sixty. So um, it wouldn't be impossible to imagine. But I, I do want to stress that I don't think the fact that, that Chris Carowell has been given this associate head coaching role means that Duke will not bring in someone more senior. You, you could have multiple associate head coaches. Um, so, so it could be someone senior and it could be someone junior. You know, it, it could go either way. But, uh, but I'm, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm thrilled for, for Chris. He, he has worked hard for this. He deserves this. And, and just because he isn't sort of as big a name as a Nolan Smith, um, you know, in, uh, in terms of being out there in social media and things like that, to me, doesn't mean that he's not, um, uh, you know, going to be a, a very, very big impact on the Duke coaching staff um, when, as he assumes what looks like the, the, the sort of number one assistant role when John Shire moves up to head coach. A couple of things. It, I'll go to your last point where you were talking about bringing in someone very seasoned, like a Johnny Dawkins, if you were, you know, Without without a head coaching position at at that time this time next year, uh, if you look at Michigan, Jawan Howard brought in Phil Martelli, who was the former St. Joe's coach. 
had no ties to the program whatsoever, had no ties to Michigan, but he wanted someone senior who had head coach experience who can kind of coach him into being a head coach and the best head coach can be. So I could see that happening, who that could be. There's a lot of possibilities. And I will say this on the recruiting front, uh, I think you, you're correct. And I'm glad you made the distinction that the associate head coach doesn't necessarily need to be the lead recruiter. However, this past week, I do know that uh, John Shire was out on the recruiting trail and guess who was with him? It was Chris Carowell viewing a lot of these players. So maybe that is a sign of things to come, or even just maybe he's the X and O's guy, or maybe he's just the guy that can just organize everything from behind the scenes. And he's not going to be out front as a really, you know, lead assistant coach. However, that works, it seems to be where John knows what that role is and knows it's something that he needs on his staff. And him combined with Coach K said, let's make him an associate head coach because of those ideals. And I want to stress one last thing before we go on this. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski is retiring at the end of this year. That does not mean Mike Krzyzewski is divorcing himself from the Duke program. That does not mean Mike Krzyzewski is going to be going off and, and sitting in a rocking chair in his porch. <laughs> right. Um, my understanding, and I'm sure yours as well, everything I've heard is that Coach K plans to continue to be very involved in the Duke program. It will be John Shire's team. I don't think we will see a day where Coach K, you know, attends a game, sits close to the bench. You know, he may attend a game in the stands or something like that. But for the most part, I think he's, he's not going to be very visible publicly. But I, I strongly suspect behind the scenes, I think John Shire will be discussing strategy. He'll be discussing, you know, perhaps evaluation of recruits and things like that. Uh, all kinds of things. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Coach K will come to some of the practices and participate in some of those. Now, he, he's going to want to give Shire and Carowell and Nolan Smith room to shape the team and shape the program the way they want. But he's not going away. Um, and, and that's a great thing. <laughs> we should all be very, very glad for that. Uh, this is not a guy retiring and moving to Florida. This is a guy who's going to be continue to be very involved in Duke University and in the Duke basketball program going forward. Yeah, he mentioned that he was going to be very involved. I know he teaches the leadership course uh, at Fuqua. Uh, that's something that he said he plans on continuing. He said he plans on continuing just being a part of the Duke, you know, ethos and just that, you know, the overall environment of the university obviously has a lot of sway and it has a lot, uh, you know, a lot of people who will listen to what he has to say when it comes to how this university moves forward and is always moving forward, uh, Duke University is. So he will be a big part of that. And, and like you said, honestly, he can sit wherever in Cameron he wants. Like it's his, his name will still be on the court. They're not ripping that up anytime soon. And he will be able to have whatever seat in the house that he wants. He may be able to just rotate, you know, you know, he'll sit next to someone one day and go, Hey, I'm just trying to chair out, see how it fits because he can do that. He's coach. Guy. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move on from the coaching staff and the current Duke team to some former Dukies. We want to talk a little about Dukies in the NBA. Um, because there, there are a, a couple guys, few guys technically, who are still alive. Now, as we record this, it is mid-afternoon on Sunday, the uh, 20th of June. It, it is possible <laughs> that by the time you listen to this, uh, one of the guys who's performing really, really well, Seth Curry, uh, either will be in the conference finals or his season will be over um, because the 76ers are playing the Atlanta Hawks this evening in a game seven, in a really exciting game. And, and I want to talk first about Seth Curry, because as a huge Hawks fan, I've been watching every one of these games in this series. And I want to say something unequivocally that I think anyone who's watched these games would agree with. And that fact is the Philadelphia 76ers would not be continuing to play 
There would not be a game seven today if it was not for what Seth Curry has done in this series. He has clearly, in my opinion, and I'm not saying um, I'm not saying I'm the only one who, who would say this, but I think a lot of people would agree that he has been the second best player on the Sixers in this series. Um, at worst, third best to Tobias Harris and uh, Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid has been their best player, but Seth has been amazing. In his last two games, he has scored 60 points on 21 of 33 field goals. That's 64% shooting from the field. And from three, 13 of 21 three-pointers, that's 62% from three. Dude has hit 62% of his three-point field goals, and he's a high volume. He's taken more than 10 threes per game. That is sick, crazy. If, if he is not, if he's merely hitting a mortal 45% from three, Philadelphia's season is over. It's as simple as that. So he has been unbelievably impressive. Donald, what have you seen from Seth Curry so far? I was waiting to see how you're going to describe him because I was going to describe him as the most consistent uh, of the Sixers. And, you know, arguably yeah, that's actually player. that's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. He's been the most consistent because there have been times where Embiid, you know, at, you know, he's as well as he's played. And sometimes late in the game, he's not shown up. You have Ben Simmons, who Philadelphia is probably, you know, a lot of Philadelphians are trying to throw him out in the trash because of how he's played. Tobias Harris has even been up and down, up and down, but he's had some great moments during the series. But but Seth Curry has been very consistent and you need that on a team. But the other thing about him is he's also doing that. And I know you're probably going to transition into the Hawks side of things. He's doing that while also at most of the time having to guard the best player on the floor, which is Trey Young during the series. And, and that is to be tired out on defense and to still come back on offense and have the offensive display that he's been having is something that most people think that that is a very, you know, underrated thing. Be able to do that. A lot of people, that's very difficult to do. And he's been having to do that. And he's the reason why we have a game seven tonight. And by the way, and this is something I mentioned on the, on the bulletin boards for folks who don't read the boards. Seth Curry is turning into one of the most criminally underpaid players in the NBA. Yeah. He is on a contract. He's on a contract, a three-year, $24 million contract. He's making 7.8 this year. He makes like 8.1, then like 8.3. He's in the first year of a three-year, $24 million deal. Now, far be it for me to say that $8 million is like not a lot of money. I mean, let's be clear. That's a ton of money. Congrats. But he is criminally underpaid. If he was a free agent right now, someone signed him to 20 plus million dollars. There's no question about that. And I mean, 20 plus million per season. When you think about the fact that Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons is making like 32 million or something like that. He's, he's on a max deal and they can't even play Ben Simmons for like half the fourth quarter because they're afraid teams are going to foul him and, and send him to the line where he can't hit any free throws. Ben Simmons can't even play for 30 plus million dollars. Seth Curry, they can't take him off the floor. If they take him off the floor, they're going to lose. And he's only making, you know, just under $8 million. He, he, gave, he gave his father-in-law a, a nice little discount. He said, hey, hey, I'll come play for you, <laughs> dad-in-law. But, uh, yeah, you know, you don't have to pay me all this much. I can come play for you. If, yeah, if he's not married to Doc Rivers' daughter, he's making a lot more money. Probably not on the Sixers. But at the same time, he's probably not in the Eastern Conference semifinals fighting in the Game 7 with the Sixers if that happens. Yeah, it's going to be a great game. Very exciting, of course, um, as much as I love Seth, I'm rooting for my Hawks. And uh, speaking of the Hawks, we'll very, very quickly mention, um, for folks who think there are only two Dukies still alive in the playoffs, uh-uh, there's one more, Cam Reddish. Donald, you pointed this out to me. Cam Reddish is still technically alive for the Atlanta Hawks, even though he hasn't played in months. I mean, 
he's still there. He's, his name's still on the roster. And when they listed everything, they listed all the players that are in the in the playoffs, and he's one of them. So he will get a ring if they if they go all the way. And it's worth noting that he has Cam was recently cleared to return. He's been injured for a while. He was recently cleared by the team's doctors to return to action. The Hawks have not activated him yet. I think that he's probably, even though he's been cleared by the doctors, not in shape, you know, and, and there's not a lot of room in the playoffs. Oh, let's take some practice time and work on getting Cam back with the team. So I, I, I sort of doubt, even if the Hawks make the Eastern Conference Finals, even if they make the NBA Finals, I don't think there's time for them really to get him integrated again. Again, he's been out for several months. But uh, but he's right there on the bench. Uh, and technically, you know, if like three or four guys got hurt, <laughs> they could they could play Cam. And and the Hawks still think that Cam Reddish has a has a real future with the team. His his length on the perimeter. He is a plus defender. And uh, and, you know, there have been times it could have used him guarding Seth Curry at times. <laughs> and and just his street, you know, his his shooting was streaky at times earlier this season and got a little bit more consistent. They're going to probably hope that that continues in the offseason. He'll work on a shot. He'll work on I mean, even his defense is great because then he can be that second option on the perimeter to Trey Young and take some of the pressure off of Trey Young so that when everyone's honing in on Trey Young, when he's firing from, you know, logo, logo status, he can pass off to Cam Reddish and Cam can make other teams pay with that. So I think that's something that they're waiting on. And they're like, at this point, let's just make sure that he's completely 100% before we bring him back. And right now, there's no need to because of how well they've been playing. Yeah. All right. So that one other Dookie in the NBA playoffs we want to talk about. This guy is in the conference finals. That's Luke Kennard playing for the L.A. Clippers. Um, Kennard had a Kennard had a pretty good, uh, sorry, Western Conference semifinal, um, uh, playing about mid-teens kind of minutes. Um, he, he was really good from three. He had 11 of 23 pointers. That's 52, 53%. Um, he had 18 points in game one against Utah. Uh, so, so Luke is playing an important role for, for the Clippers, not as a starter like Seth and, and it may not, you know, I guess he's not quite the player that some folks thought he would be when the Clippers signed him. Uh, he's, he's strode, he's had a little bit of an up and down season with them, but, but now that we're in the playoffs, he's, he's one of their key reserves. Um, like I said, getting pretty much getting double digit minutes in, in virtually every game. And, um, they, they've got a, a, you know, I don't know who, who you pick in that series between, them and the Phoenix Suns, especially because Chris Paul, you know, is coveted out for for Phoenix at the moment. So uh, and Kawhi's know, out. Yeah, yeah, right. And we don't know when Kawhi. I mean, there's been talk he might try and come back. Well, you know, we'll see. Terrence Mann, shocking. Like Florida State's Terrence Mann stepped up with Kawhi out. Huge game yeah. to to advance them. So, but anyway, Luke Kennard um, uh, going deep in the playoffs as well. So good for him. I will say it's you can't talk about Luke Kennard or the Clippers without mentioning that game six where they were down at one point. I believe they were down 26 points to the Jazz and they came all the way back and just stomped them out like winning, running away in the fourth quarter. One of the greatest comebacks I've seen in an NBA playoff game to send them home. And of course, Quinn Snyder, the coach of the Jazz, another dookie that we, we would have had. We had a dookie moving out of that series. It just, you know. It's incredible that we thought it was that one. And I will say this about Luke Kennard. A lot of people have unfairly compared Luke Kennard to Donovan Mitchell because the Pistons took Luke Kennard one pick before Donovan Mitchell went to the Jazz. I think it's unfair to do so, but I do think it's telling that a lot of people have talked about how Luke Kennard has not not been as big as Donovan Mitchell. But at the end of the day, 
Luke Kennard is still playing basketball and Donovan Mitchell's gone home. And that's not to say that Donovan Mitchell didn't have one of the greatest series that someone, you know, NBA players had because he did. But at the end of the day, we can't be comparing players to other players because they all have their roles. Luke Kennard is playing his role for the Clippers. The Clippers got took care of business against the Jazz. And now they're moving on to the to the conference finals. All right. So that's kind of silly, if you ask me, this notion of comparing just because he got picked one pick ahead of of Donovan Mitchell. I mean, come on. It, 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 I say it's unfair. It's very unfair. And as a Pistons fan, when we drafted them, I said, hey, you know, if we draft Donovan Mitchell instead of Luke Kennard, maybe Luke Kennard goes to the Jazz and he becomes a baller and Donovan, Donovan Mitchell doesn't. We don't know that. And I think it's all about the guys ending up on the right teams at the right times. Obviously, Donovan Mitchell ended up in the perfect situation for him, and he exploded. Luke Kennard is now finding his role with the Clippers after being traded in the offseason from the Pistons, and now he's you know has his role with the, with the Clippers. It, are they relying him to score 30 points? No, but he has his role, and he's executing it for the Clippers, and especially when we need, you know, when the Clippers need scoring with Kawhi Leonard out, he's stepping up along with the rest of the team. Look, there are several guys who were taken ahead of Luke Kennard and Donovan Mitchell who, who are far worse players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, would you rather have Luke Kennard or Dennis Smith Jr.? I mean, there's no question about that. Would you rather have Luke Kennard? Well, Dennis Smith Jr. is on the Pistons now, too. So, <laughs> yeah. Would you rather have <laughs> Luke Kennard? State of the Pistons. Or Frank Nitalik. I can't even pronounce that guy's last name. The guy, the point guard for the Knicks who barely plays. I mean, oh, yeah. Not even a close call, and, and that that was a really good draft. That's a strong draft. I mean, that, that was Jason Tatum was in that draft. Uh, De'Aaron Fox is in that draft. There are a lot of good players in that draft. Um, you know, the fact that Donovan Mitchell went one pick after Luke Kennard to me is absolutely irrelevant. If you repicked that draft, Luke Kennard is still a lottery pick. Um, it, it was a good pick, and he's had a he's had a nice career. I'm I'm not at all worried. That's silly. Yeah, I agree. Uh, side sidebar, real quick. There yeah. is the NBA draft lottery this week, so. Uh, not to necessarily say, uh, hopefully my Pistons get the number one pick. Narrator, we won't get the number one pick. We'd never have. Uh, but it does, will put a lot of things into focus. We've talked about the three players uh, that left Duke early to go to the NBA draft. We know that Jalen Johnson has been you know, at times mentioned as a late lottery pick, mid first round pick. But this will set a lot of that in motion where we see where teams are going to be drafting. We can see kind of where some of these players are going to fall in the lottery and where, you know, where good situations are for them. So it'll be interesting to see how that shapes up and we'll be able to use that to kind of predict, not necessarily, you know, tell, but at least predict where Jalen Johnson, DJ Stewart and Matthew Hurt kind of fall in this new in this upcoming draft. Yeah, we're going to have a ton uh, about the draft as we as we get close as we approach it. By the way, Donald, I heard a great uh, this isn't a trivia, but this is just a, a fun thing I heard the other day talking about the Pistons. Um, it was pointed out to me, as you just pointed out, that the Pistons have never won the NBA draft lottery. The highest they've ever gotten was they drafted number two. Do you know? Tell the fans who they, the Pistons, with their highest draft pick, their best draft pick of the lottery era. Who did they take, Donald? And I will, and I know this pick, and I will go to my grave <laughs> saying that it was a great pick. It was Darko Milicic, the human victory cigar. Why? Everyone's like, who do we draft him ahead? We draft him ahead of, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch. If we draft either of those two teams or two players, and I'm not saying that they're, they're both Hall of Fame players. If we draft one of those two, we trade one of the key pieces that helped us win the title that very following year. Oh, oh wait, wait, keep on with this. Uh, explain. What, who okay, so traded? If, yeah. 
Oh, so it, it, it's, it's no open secret. It, it, so basically, here's what's going to happen. If we draft Dwayne Wade, we trade Rip Hamilton or Chauncey Billups. Chauncey Billups ended up being the finals MVP. If we get Chris Bosh, we trade Tayshawn Prince. And that was all. They actually tried to do this. They tried to trade Tayshawn Prince so that could, they could leave the cap room available to draft the Chris Bosh and insert him into that part of the lineup. We ended up saying, nope, we need his defense. And we held on to him. So when you have that, add Ben Wallace, obviously, and you have those three guys, there's no one left on the team. We just needed, we didn't need that pick. And also I will say about that pick, that pick was the very last pick we could have possibly had in the Otis Thorpe trade from 1997. If we did not get, if it was a number one Otis Thorpe trade? Oh my God. Otis Thorpe trade. If we, if that pick was any lower than four, we don't get that pick and we completely lose it. It was the last lottery protected one. And the only place we could get was number one, two, three, or four. Everything after that, it would have. And that's the thing is you could drop down to five. So we were worried once we saw that someone else got five, we knew that we were going to get that pick. And it was the final year that we could have held on to that pick without completely losing it. Donald, I, I want to be clear about something. Are you trying to justify? Are you trying to say that when the Detroit Pistons drafted Darko Milicic mm-hmm. with the second pick in the draft, that it wasn't a disastrous mistake? <laughs> we won the NBA title the very next year. So, okay. All right. <laughs> Titles, hey, rings, that's what matters, people. That's all that matters. Yep. Uh, and, and with that note, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, not playing for rings, playing for medals. There's more on that in just a moment. And we're back from the break, and we just wanted very quickly talk about uh, Olympic stuff because the Olympics are coming up next month, July. We just got confirmation in the past few days that Damian Lillard, Draymond Green, and Jason Tatum, Dookie Jason Tatum, those are the first big names to commit to Team USA. Almost uh, immediately, shortly after those guys committed and said, yes, we are playing, we heard that Bradley Beal and Devin Booker would also had also committed to play for the team. Now, Booker's, you know, kind of complicated. He's still playing. He's still in the NBA playoffs, a member of the Phoenix Suns, arguably the best player on the Phoenix Suns. Um, so depending on how far they go, if they go all the way to the finals, it is possible that could complicate Devin Booker playing. But between Lillard, Green, Tatum, and Bradley Beal, that is a good initial core. That says to you that top-tier players, all NBA caliber players, are committing to play for Team USA. We're not going to be taking the B team or the C team, um, uh, even though, you know, uh, LeBron James has already said he can't play, even though there's some guys who are injured who are not going to be able to play. Um, it looks like the USA is going to take a, a really high-level team. Steph Curry is sort of the biggest name that we're waiting on uh, next. Steph has said he's thinking about it. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously he'd be a wonderful addition. He has never played for Team USA uh, in the Olympics. So it'd be really exciting to get Steph on that team. Kawhi Leonard, who got hurt, you know, if Kawhi doesn't get hurt, you know, maybe there, there was a lot of talk that Kawhi was going to play this time around. Um, and, and the interesting thing about the guys who've committed so far and the guys who look like they're probably going to play for the team is that I really think we're going to see Jason Tatum playing almost exclusively power forward, like a stretch four for this team, because there's a lot of guards, a lot of wings who are going to be on Team USA, uh, not a lot of big men. Um, and, I, and I suspect Draymond Green will probably be the starting center who will play a lot of center um, for, for Team USA. Um, it's going to be very interesting 
to see that stuff. Hey, hey any thoughts, Donald, from you on uh, Olympic stuff? Yeah, well, I like what is how it's shaping up right now, and I'm really, really glad that Jason Tatum is one of the at least the first five uh, that are going to Tokyo. Uh, it's a very tremendous, it's a tremendous accomplishment for a young man at his age to be considered one of you know the top twelve to fifteen players in America, and which is you know is not a small player pool uh, to choose from. There, there is a huge number of players that could have taken his place. And for him to be considered chosen and for him to accept is a great thing. I, I'm going to be very curious as to how this roster kind of rounds out. The one team that I think is very intriguing is the Brooklyn Nets, who just lost in game seven last night. There's obviously their big three, all of which have uh, USA team or Team USA experience who could be called in. Uh, it is one, it'll be interesting to see if Kyrie Irving or James Harden or Kevin Durant ends up also committing to this team. But I think if, you know, with withstanding that, I think you're right. And that Jason Tatum is going to be used as a four uh, for the most part, because in the, in the Olympic game, they play much smaller than they do in the NBA. And I think with him being a stretch four, like very few guys are going to be able to check him because if you can see in the NBA, very few of the NBA guys can check him. Who's this? I mean, God bless yeah. whoever is in our, in our group. <laughs> You know, those those poor teams that play us in those early round games like Jason Tatum's going to go off for a 40 burger if he wants to like any of these guys can. So I'm really excited to see that he's on the team. Hopefully the jerseys are sweet so I can grab one. Yeah. And the other Dookie whose name we're waiting to hear about, obviously, is Zion Williamson. Zion is in the in the pool of players who who could be asked, who could be a part of this. Um, and uh, I, I I would not be at all surprised if Zion um, opts to play for Team USA, probably the first, potentially the first of many appearances for him on Team USA. I want to really quickly mention, because um, we've talked about the Canadian Olympic team a little bit, um, the, the Canadians have announced um, some of the names of guys who will be uh, in the, uh, Canada is playing in a special tournament starting on June 29th um, to determine whether or not they make it to the Olympics. They are favored to, to win that tournament and make the Olympic pool. Um, and R.J. Barrett is one of the guys who will be on that team um, starting on June 29th. Uh, Andrew Wiggins is going to play for them. Uh, Lugens Dort, uh, Nikhil Alexander-Walker is going to play. Dylan Brooks is not. Uh, Dylan Brooks, arguably, you know, one of the top two or three players for Canada, uh, is going to skip that tournament, but still says he'll probably um, he'll probably play in the Olympics if they make it to the Olympics. But but between R.J. and, and Andrew Wiggins and the other, guy, other NBA guys they have, it feels like Canada is probably going to get there. And, and I'm really excited for a really good NBA filled Canadian team to potentially match up with team USA in the Olympics. That'd be a lot of fun. I do hope Canada makes it for, and I hope that Zion uh, also opts to play for team USA for this reason, Jason, we could have where RJ Barrett, Zion Williamson and Jason Tatum could play on as many as four Olympic teams. They're young enough where if they yeah. stay healthy and they play until their mid mid thirties, they could be on four Olympic teams. That's incredible. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. It'd be pretty fun. Uh, hey, uh, we're we're about to wrap things up. I did want to mention really quick a couple things. I just want folks to be aware of this coming week um, on Tuesday and Wednesday. The NCAA Council is meeting. I believe it's called the NCAA Council. I need to look this up. I'm I'm terrible about these things. But there's a NCAA body that is meeting this week, um, and uh, and they are expected to to pass to enact legislation that will change name, image, and likeness rules. The NCAA had hoped that Congress would take care of this for them. Um, that was laughable. We've had an entire episode talking about how foolish and crazy that notion was. Congress is continuing to hold hearings into 
uh, you know, paying the players, but they're nowhere close to getting any legislation out there, getting anything that would go through the Senate or the House and get signed by the president. It's simply not in the cards uh, in the you know near future. And so it looks like the NCAA this week on Monday or Tuesday, I'm sorry, on Tuesday or Wednesday, will pass their own legislation to get some kind of name, image, and likeness rules in place and allow players to begin to make money off of their off of their fame and their skills and the such. And that's a really good thing. The other little thing I wanted to mention, Donald, then I'll let you comment if you want. I saw a stat the other day. Um, everyone's talked about this summer, the portal, the NCAA transfer portal, and all the guys who've entered the portal. Uh, the, the latest number, as of a couple of days ago, total number of players in college basketball who have entered the transfer portal, 1,663, 1,663 players. Of those players who've entered the transfer portal, 580 of them have still not found a school. That means 35% of the guys in the portal don't know where they're gonna play next year. We are into late June at this point and the transfer portal has 35% of the players in it uncertain of where they're gonna play next. The unintended consequences of some of these rule changes are just you know, mind boggling. And uh, I really hope, uh, there are some of these guys who probably think, oh, well, if things don't work out, I'll go back to my school where, well, your school may have already filled your scholarship spot. They may have brought someone else in through the transfer portal and replaced you. And so there may not be a spot for you. I, I hope there aren't guys. I'm, I'm sure there'll be some who'll be left hanging. I hope there aren't too many guys who are left hanging by these crazy rules that everyone's trying to figure out on the fly. It's just, it's the NCAA can't get out of their own way sometimes. It was inevitable on the transfer portal with so many players entering that you'd have some that we're waiting long because you know how it is. Some players were probably entering the portal thinking that one or two particular schools in their mind, were going to give them a quick call and it'd be over. And that didn't happen. And then as the, as the spring went on and you saw some players bolting very quickly to other teams and some players kind of getting a bunch of offers and able to kind of have another, another recruiting process. There were some that were not getting those calls. There were some that were not getting those letters and emails and text messages and they're probably sitting there trying to figure out, hey, do I keep playing basketball? Do I keep, do I go down to division two or division three? You know, those sort of questions that they probably have, which is why there's so many guys still on that list. So uh, hopefully, as you said, that a lot of them do end up finding a place to play, whether it's a place that they in their mind didn't think was going to happen, at least it's a place that, for them to play and continue their college career. And I'll say on the name, image, and likeness front, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, I know they're supposed to pass something. We'll see it. And we're probably, and, and honestly, like we said, it's probably going to be underwhelming. It's probably going to have way more questions than answers. And it may not even loop together all of the, the stringent, you know, most strict requirements that have been passed by states already. So I expect they'll do something and it'll be just enough to say they do something. And we'll still have a lot of questions on July 1st crazy times that we are here to follow all of it and tell you all about it that is going to wrap it up here on episode 321 of the duke basketball report podcast hey sam sam we missed you this time um sorry you could not join us sam but uh i'm sure you're listening out there somewhere um for donald i am jason thanks again people for for uh, uh, listening in as we chat about all the different crazy things happening this summer regarding Duke basketball and Dukies all over the place. Hey, don't forget to reach out to us. You can email us anytime you want at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Um, wherever you listen to podcasts, please go leave us a nice five-star review. We appreciate those. And every so often when we get a nice one, we read it on the air. If you want to be famous, 
Leave us a five-star review, and we'll make you famous by reading about it on the air. Um, until next time, again, I'm Jason. He's Donald. Sam will join us again, and we will be back very soon. Until then, here's the new fan to play us out and take us home.